Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman on the Monday after Thanksgiving. Bruce, this is always such a just crushingly busy time on our beat because everything is all converging, right? We've got the last week of the season, who's going to make the playoff, and also on Sunday, eight gazillion coaches got fired. Yeah, and it, it feels like it gets more chaotic every year, and uh, this weekend was certainly that. Uh, my our crew had a double this weekend on Fox. We had a, a Friday morning game in a very rainy uh, Austin, Texas, where we had Texas, Texas Tech, and there was plenty of coaching changes going on in Austin. Tom Herman's still there, but he's going to have two new coordinators. Uh, and then we flew to Oklahoma for Bedlam on Saturday night, and. Uh, I watched the first quarter of the Iron Bowl in our hotel, but after that I had to go to the game and had to get ready for our game. So there was some crazy stuff that happened from the time I, I turned off the TV to the time I found out what happened. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway from the Iron Bowl? Let's start with that. It was such a wild game. Uh, I, I can't imagine cramming anything more into a football game. Uh, I think it was the game of the year in our sport so far this year. Uh, it, it, and, and I just kept thinking, like, for instance, when, when Auburn had the 100-yard pick six on a play where I kept rewinding it, trying to figure out how he caught that because it, it looked like his back was to the – like, how could he even have seen the ball in order to catch it? I just remember thinking, how does this keep happening in Iron Bowls at Jordan-Hare? Like how can how can this rivalry and have a, the kick six, a play like this, um, it not just limited to the Iron Bowl? Obviously, it just seems like whenever Gus Malzahn has a big win, there's craziness involved. The the, the miracle at Jordan Hare against uh, Georgia. So the cra- I, I think the craziest part of all though is just that for everything that happened, for Mac Jones throwing two pick sixes, that Alabama was still in this game down to the last minute, and then. The craziest thing of all, Gus Malzahn tricks them. I'm I've never seen that where they they put the punter at wide receiver and and just completely fooled their defense into getting a 12 minute on the field penalty. Uh, I know Saban called it afterwards unfair. I'm sure it felt that way, but uh, if they didn't break any rules, it is what it is. Yeah, let me ask you about that. Yeah, I mean to me that now I'm seeing this after the fact, but just to see his comments. It's very odd because so much of football is about deception and trying to outsmart your opponent. I mean, like all of a sudden, that's that's not fair. Like t- to me, I credit to Gus Malzahn for doing something that they weren't prepared for. Right? I mean, am I missing something with that? Not to give Nick Saban a complete pass, but 
I think what that comment was, what, what that was, was a coach who's used to beating everybody, who is sitting there at a press conference at the end of a season in which he had the worst injury luck of his career. He lost his star quarterback. He's probably more frustrated than anything about the last, the, the one putting the one second back on at the end of the first half and, and letting Auburn kick. But wasn't that the right call though? That one was questionable. The, the 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 one at the end of the half, it's like, you know, whether there should have been a second put back or not, if it had just happened in real time, you couldn't have gotten the kickoff. So so by going to replay and stopping the game, it gave Auburn the opportunity to actually get lined up and kick the field goal. And I'm sure he's frustrated about that. So I just I just think that all of the frustration of that game and that season was spilling out in the form of that's unfair. Uh, maybe I'm giving him too much benefit of the doubt, but because no, it wasn't unfair. It was. Just Auburn being really smart. They wanted, you know, Jalen Waddle had the game of his life and and gave us a little sneak peek, I think, of what Alabama's going to look like in 2020 when he's the guy. Uh, and they just didn't want to have to kick to him, so they tried to fake them out. Now, with hindsight, you can say Alabama should have been smart enough to realize that they weren't actually going to punt with their their uh, with nobody basically back there to 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 block for him. You know, the punt would have gotten blocked probably. So just let them go delay a game or timeout. But, I don't know, it was all happening fast in real time. I'm sure they were very confused. Somehow they end up with Patrick Sertan in press coverage against the punter. They were just really confused. And But, again, as I said before, for a guy who, Gus Malzahn, who every other year the fans want to run off, hasn't had, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that many outstanding seasons. Even this one's ending at 9-3. and three. But he just has this knack for, against Alabama in particular, and in some other big games, doing these very creative, tricky things uh, that end up winning the ball game. So um, congratulations to him. I mean, it was a probably considered a disappointing season in general, but anytime you can win the Iron Bowl, which, by the way, he has now won. He has now beaten Saban three of his seven years there, which, given it's the biggest dynasty in the sport over the last decade, is... is pretty impressive and just you know this is a this is a very crossroads moment for Saban and Alabama they uh and and it's just it's a remarkable stat right first time since 2010 that they lost twice before bowl season you would think that that should be impossible uh but now they're facing kind of a crossroads moment where let's be honest they've been very mortal uh going back to the Clemson national championship game basically the last three big games they've played they didn't just lose. They gave up uh, 44, 46, and 48 points. So we're, so if you were a betting man, where do you think, I mean, this is, I don't even know if I want to say this, but if you were a betting man, do you think Nick Saban has won his last national title in Tuscaloosa? Uh, only if I want to lose my house. Uh, no, I'm not going to bet against him yet. I will say that this is probably... This is clearly the most mortal they have looked in a long time. And I, I do think, you know, we said it God knows how many times on this podcast the last couple of years. Like, at what point does losing the majority of your coaching staff year after year catch up to you? And I think that um, that probably has at least something to do with it. Uh, it's not just bad injury luck. But, you know, the guy has won six national championships. I'm not going to bet against him getting things back in order. I do wonder if. He's having a little bit of, not that you would ever like trade what you had with Tua. That was a remarkable run, 
I wonder if he's having a little bit of buyer's remorse, though, about going all in on this style of, you know, wide open, high scoring offense, because it seems like it's come at the expense of his defense, which is really his his bread and butter. And I'm sure his priority this offseason will be how do we get back to playing the the type of dominant defense that Alabama fan that Alabama we've come to expect from Alabama uh, way back to 2008. Well, I do think he's faced some better offenses than he had seen five years ago. Uh, you know, obviously we remember last uh, January where Trevor Lawrence and those receivers torched torched the Crimson Tide. That's a better offense than he had seen. Remember, uh, I think you and I were both in the building when Johnny Manziel absolutely lit them up. So it wasn't like it hadn't happened before. But there'd been a kind of a, I don't know, you'd have teams with good running backs, but really limited passing games in the SEC. LSU ran them off the field in the first half and put up 46 points on them because they have a big-time passing game now. And I think that's that's an equalizer there. It's not to say that they didn't face anybody who had any firepower, but I think, again, I remember Johnny Manziel and Mike Evans just eating up Nick Saban's defense. And now we're seeing it. You're certainly seeing it with Clemson, and, and whether it's Deshaun Watson or Trevor Lawrence, we saw it with, with Joe Burrow. And I think that's, you know, I don't think it's as simple as saying, okay, well, if he... If he, because he went all in on this, all of a sudden he's turned into Mike Leach in the air raid. And I'm not saying you're saying that, but I think what really has happened is, and I remember having this conversation with a friend about, I don't know, 15 years ago now about USC and the Pete Carroll run. The way the sport is set up, it is so hard to sustain uh, a level of dominance. Saban has done it more than anybody has at this level at a time when it's harder to do it. But I just think so much is stacked against you. As you mentioned, you know, we did the story on The Athletic about staff chemistry and the changes on the staff that Saban makes and that he made this offseason. I think, you know, you mentioned about the devastating loss of Tua and the injury. You know, if I'm a Maryland fan or if I'm, you know, whatever, you know, about fans of 80 other schools, I'm like, you know what? You were very fortunate. You did not have an injury like that. And it's not to say they haven't had key guys go down, but plenty of other programs, you know, have had to go with their third string quarterback at a time or two. Right. And so I think that, you know, it's hard to do it for so many reasons. I'm with you. I wouldn't say that he's, you know, that Nick Saban's never going to win a national title again. But it is an interesting time right now where they're not the hot school at this point, and it does feel like they've lost some momentum. They got blown out in the national title game. Their defense has been shelled a couple of times. I mean, when you look at their resume right now, their best win is against a 7-5 and five Texas A&M team that just got beat by 40, 43 points. You know, it's the, their resume this season – uh, I'm surprised they're still in the top ten, to be honest. And again, the well, we'll, we'll see if yet. they are when the when the committee rankings come out. Right, you but know, even though even in the polls that come out over the weekend, just to see them at nine and people like they fell to nine, and I was like, they're they're ten and two with really one with like a fringe of a of a decent win. I mean, it's 
I don't know. Um, again, I, I would not at all be surprised if they bounced back and were, were in the playoff and in the national title game next year. But I'm curious to see what, what the team is going to look like because they're going to lose a bunch of really good receivers to the NFL. Obviously, Waddle, we, we assume, will still be back. Uh, whether it's Mac Jones or Tua's younger brother or a grad transfer taken over, I mean, those are big shoes to fill. And it's going to be interesting to see what goes next. To your point about Maryland and, and backup quarterbacks, remember that stat when when uh, Tua missed the first game against Arkansas? That that was the first time in his entire tenure that his starting quarterback wasn't available for a game. That's insane good fortune. That you know is amazing that it lasts that long. So all of which is to say, for all these things you're talking about, and they're all true, it took this in, in, extraordinary set of circumstances for them to even lose two games. So. Before we do the sky is falling thing, it's not like, you know, when they have, you mentioned Pete Carroll, when they have a season like USC did in his last season where they're losing uh, by three touchdowns to Oregon, it might have been more than that, and and just, you know, look like a shell of their former selves, then we can talk about is he ever going to win another national championship. I'm not going to go there after a 10-2 and two regular season. Uh, speaking of rivalries, Ohio State-Michigan, uh you know, I expected Ohio State to win pretty comfortably. I'm not sure I expected yet another uh, lops. I mean, they had a chance. They kind of they didn't really go for it at the end, but they got the ball back after a year after 62-39. They got the ball back with a chance to possibly make it 63. Uh, so they end up with 56. So two years in a row that Ohio State scores more than 50 points against Michigan. Uh, did you see that coming? No, not to that degree. Uh, I had a, figured out a stat after the game. So in the last two years, Ryan Day in that offense has averaged 59 points a game against Don Brown's defense. Everybody else in the Big Ten is averaging 14. That is staggering to the difference. And, you know, I've heard some, some folks say, okay, this is the biggest talent disparity that's ever been in this rivalry. I'm not sure that's the case. I think Ohio State is as is as good as it has been in our lifetimes right now, talent wise. I mean, I think Michigan was much worse Rich Rod's first and second year than what they are now. I mean, they were his first year; they were terrible. They're not a terrible team, but I just think this is how talented Ohio State is, and you get Ohio State on uh, on all systems are going when they play Michigan. You know, some other teams may get them, at least they did last year, uh, where they were either distracted or not focused for the game or however it was. But when when this game is circled for 365 days, man, Ohio State goes on the attack and stays on it. Now, there's certainly some stuff Michigan... Michigan shot itself in the foot way too many times with momentum, whether it was... You can look, starting with a missed extra point at the, after the, a great opening series, and then... Uh, a fumbled snap in the red zone where Shea Patterson had been playing terrific. And then just you can't give them an extra possession where it's like another turnover when they jump off sides on a fourth and four. And so they have to give, they don't get the ball back. And I think if Michigan was going to really have a chance to win that game and you can say, okay, look, if you could give them touchdown in the red zone instead of the fumble and give them the ball back, I just think they needed to really make it a fourth quarter game to see where they were and they didn't give themselves that chance because they just made too many mental mistakes and credit to Ohio State they didn't and they were really sharp and 
And uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not ready. I've seen some people talk about how this is the this might be an all time great team. We got to pump the brakes on that for a while. We'll we'll have a better read on them after they after the playoff happens. But right now, you know, it's a rivalry, but it's completely one sided. Well, right now we've got three teams that are vying for all-time great team status. And Ohio State wasn't touched all regular season. They didn't even have they didn't have that one scare like Clemson did against UNC. They didn't have uh, a single game that they had to go all the way to win, like uh, certainly LSU against uh, actually both against Texas and against Alabama. Uh, I think the, the scariest thing for if you're watching that game, if you're going to play Ohio State, is Michigan was the first team to completely neutralize Chase Young. He had no tackles, no sacks. You never heard his name other than, I think, a couple times you saw him get in the backfield. And it was still a blowout. So, uh, you know, you can't uh, – you think you've, you've got a handle on Justin Fields? Great. J.K. Dobbins will go off on you and vice versa. Now, the scariest moment of the whole game was when Justin Fields went down or injured his knee and, and you know, for that brief moment you thought, oh, boy, is this is – this, a season-ending injury that would have changed everything. Turns out, uh, he and I was down on the field against when he, against Penn State when he also had a brief injury. That one you could tell wasn't serious. Uh, turns out he sprained his MCL. Went back in the game. That's something to keep an eye on. That's not a trivial injury by any means. Uh, if you noticed in that game, he didn't run the ball nearly as much. Still, lopsided win. I think if you're Michigan, last. I don't know. I think last year's was probably more crushing because, remember, they went into the Ohio State game last year with a chance to make the playoff, and they were the hot team, and Ohio State had been struggling, and to lose 62-39 to was just unthinkable. The circumstances going into this one, we kind of knew Ohio State was going to win, uh, and so it's just, uh, you know, for all the improvement that Michigan showed from early in the season until up until that, at the end of the day... Nine and three regular season, another loss to Ohio State. Uh, probably going to go play in the Citrus Bowl or the Holiday Bowl. Uh, I think it's, they were picked to win the Big Ten. It's another disappointing season for Harbaugh and for Michigan. All right, Stu. Before we get into the craziness of the coaching carousel, let's talk a little playoff. So, what is your big uh, read on what's going to happen this week? Well, it's going to be. Obviously, there's a scenario where it could be very clean, which is Georgia beating LSU. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Georgia just can't do enough on offense to keep up with them. Also, if Oregon were to upset Utah, that would basically make the Big 12 championship game a a playoff uh, quarterfinal. Based on what I've seen of Utah and Oregon recently, I like the Utes. So I think it's going to come down to what could be a pretty intense and, and, frankly, no easy answer debate between 12 and one Utah and 12 and one Oklahoma or Baylor. Um, we talked about this last week and you just saw Oklahoma in person again. So I should probably ask you uh, just eye test. Do you still believe Utah is better than Oklahoma? I think they're more consistent. Um, I don't know. Uh, to me, I think Oklahoma is more explosive I mean, to me, CeeDee Lamb is a, is so underrated. He's a tremendous uh, run-after-the-catch guy, really dynamic return guy as well. Um, I like what I've seen from Oklahoma's defense in the, in the last, in, especially this past weekend. 
Uh, I thought they're they're playing better. They have a couple of difference makers in the front seven on the defense, and Kenneth Murray, Kenneth Murray, and Neville Gallimore. I've seen some younger players in the front seven really emerge in the last few weeks, and I think that helps. I and mean, they're still really shaky in the secondary. Um, I don't know. I mean, I honestly like I my read on this is going to be who is going to be more impressive this weekend. I really think it's going to come down to that if. If Oklahoma beats Baylor 31-17 and Utah struggles and beats beats Oregon 17-14, and that's you know Utah's best second second best win then is against the seven and five Washington team on the road. I think Oklahoma has a good chance to leapfrog them. I really do. Now, what to me, what's kind of left out in this, what people are saying is, what happens if Baylor beats Oklahoma? You know, Baylor basically would have played one bad half of football this year and people would be gonging them. And it's, you know, you can say, yeah, their non-conference schedule stinks. Well, Utah's non-conference schedule is not great either. Well, Utah's, Utah at least played BYU, which is a lot bigger challenge than Stephen F. Austin, Rice, and UTSA. But uh, I think that, like you said, I think if, if this... Well, Utah, I mean, Utah lost to a... Utah would have lost to an eight and four USC team with its third string quarterback. Whereas, and I get it, Zach Moss was hurt. But if we're going to say Zach Moss was hurt, maybe we can say that Matt Fink was the guy who who beat them. Whereas Oklahoma, their their one their you know one loss, I'm sorry, Baylor, where their one loss would be against a uh, an Oklahoma team that played for the conference championship. To me, that's a that's a better loss than. Than what I think what Utah has, if you're going to, you know, come down to okay, BYU is better than UTSA. Well, I, this was what my Ford Pass lead column, lead of the column was all about this week was comparing the teams' resumes, and there's no question, without knowing how the games are going to play out, but if if we just spin forward and say that Utah wins and Oklahoma wins, there's no question Oklahoma's going to have the better resume. Uh, Utah to this point. And I, I think they're a great team. I think they're a complete team. But how do we really know that when the best team they've beaten so far to this point is seven and five? And I'm not even sure which seven and five team it is: Washington, Cal, ASU, um, whereas Oklahoma just this just on the game you were at, they went and beat an Oklahoma State team that finishes eight and four. That's a better win than anything currently on Utah's resume. And they dominated that game. Right. They want that they would have a chance to have two wins over an 11 win Baylor team, uh, both of them away from home. So if you're just going resume to me, I think Oklahoma will get in over Utah. I think it's even possible that this Tuesday that they might bump Oklahoma above Utah because of that Oklahoma State win and winning it convincingly. I think there was some skepticism going into that one because they, they kept, you know, it was one escape after another for Oklahoma in the week's leading up to that now they finally had a convincing win um i think it's a little more i think it's a little trickier if it's utah against baylor uh for several reasons one uh, that non-conference schedule that that rob mullins has brought up a couple times two at least with utah and oklahoma i can i can pull up uh sagrid or s&p or any number of metrics that's actually right now say oklahoma's ranked higher than utah not so much with baylor uh, statistically, you know, Utah has a top 10 offense and defense, which is, is playoff caliber. Baylor is in the low teens in both. So there's a lot of 
reasons to say if the committee wanted to come out and say, well, yeah, Baylor just beat 11-1 Oklahoma, and that's great, and they have now a better resume than Utah, but we still think Utah's the better team. I, I, I think they would have a hard time, even if, you, even if everybody in that room on Selection Sunday thinks, my gut says Utah's better, well, how do you really know if they haven't done it against the best teams? Uh, but we're saying all this, and we, don't yet, we haven't yet watched Utah, Oregon. We haven't yet watched Oklahoma, Baylor. I do think there could be a beauty pageant aspect to this. Uh, whatever happens, people are going to be angry about it. I think that's the one thing I'm sure about is that unless Georgia makes this nice and clean um, or Oregon makes it nice and clean, people are going to be angry. How is Georgia going to make it nice and clean? Because if Georgia beats LSU, your four teams are going to be Ohio State, LSU, Clemson, Georgia. Right, but you have two conference champs potentially with one loss and they're not getting in. I don't think that's nice and clean. That's all I'm trying to say. I don't think it's going to be all that controversial. Like, yeah, yeah, obviously the fans of those teams will be ticked. The fans of those conferences will be ticked. I mean, I don't think that's nice and clean. You're going to put two SEC teams in over, and I'm not saying I would, I don't, you know, look, if they beat LSU, I would think they would be one of the four best teams, but you'd be putting two teams from one conference in potentially over teams with the same record. With conference championships. You're saying conference championships don't matter at that point. That's what you're saying as a committee. No, you're not. You're, you're yes, only you putting are. Georgia in because they won the conference championship. They're not getting and in without not, and, they, and what are you saying to you're putting LSU in? They didn't win a conference championship with the same record as two teams from the Power Five that won conference titles. Yeah, but, so L- you're saying but LSU championships would have. Don't matter. But you're still LSU would still have they right now they have three top. You're have, saying conference championships don't matter, Stu. That's what you're saying. Conference championships are supposed to be a tiebreaker when the teams are close. Do you really think LSU, which has been just the world's most dominant offensive team up to this point, and which has wins over Alabama, Alabama, Auburn, and Florida? I'm not telling you that. All I'm saying is. You're saying really conference championships don't matter. That's the message you're sending. I'm not, honestly, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm saying that's the message the committee is sending. If you don't think that's the case, you're kidding yourself. It's supposed to be the four best teams. Unless LSU loses 35 to 7, nobody on Sunday, this coming Sunday, is going to say they're not one of the four best teams. Listen, I'm, here's what I want you to do. You can, you can, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. The part that I'm not agreeing with you is, you're basically the message you're sending is conference championships really don't matter. Well, so what you're saying is if that happens, you're going to be the first one on board of the, this is the reason why we need to have eight and we need every conference champion to automatically get in. I've been on that. I've been on that for what, no matter what happens this weekend. Yeah. I think they do need eight. I think this is a very flawed system right now. That's I never would have guessed when this thing was set up, that there would ever be a season where two 12 and one power five champs could get left out. And we'll see if that actually happens. I mean, my hunch is that one of Utah or Oklahoma will lose because that's just what happens in college football. But if it doesn't, that's, that's a, that's a very, I thought by now, this is the sixth year. I thought for sure we would have two lost teams in multiple times. It, for whatever reason, we're having these very top-heavy seasons where teams are able to get through with one or no losses. So, um, but you know, at the end of the day, under under the criteria we're currently using, which is four best teams, that LSU team with that resume 
is getting in whether they beat Georgia or not. Um, there will be what you will, you know, I guess I shouldn't have said it would be clean and controversy free because I just meant we know who the four teams would be. Like, there's no uncertainty there. That doesn't mean there wouldn't still be people ticked off and saying, what kind of a system is this where you can go 12-1, and win your conference, in Utah's case, be pretty much dominant all but one game, and get left out. Um, I, I continue to jump back and forth between the two. Sometimes I think I want that. Sometimes I don't. I will say this. Whether it's Utah, whether it's Oklahoma, whether it's Baylor, none of those teams is going to win the national championship. Ohio State, Clemson, and LSU are on another level. One of them is going to win the national championship. So at the end of the day, this is not affecting the national championship like it like in the BCS. If one of if like when Auburn went undefeated, we for all we know they would have been the national champion that year. There were several instances of that. When you're talking about which of these teams is basically just going to get the fourth spot and probably lose to Ohio State, I, I have a hard time getting outraged about that. But I know a lot of people will. All right, why don't we pivot to programs that are not in the playoff or anywhere near it, although one of them has a tie to that, and that is USC. USC was in the news a lot uh, over the weekend with their coaching search, or maybe they don't have a coaching search going on. Uh, Stu, we both worked at SI, you much longer than me. Please explain to me what the hell is going on in the SI media media world. Oh, you want to go there, do you? No, I really don't want to go there. Um, but it was it was a very, very um, chaotic situation in terms of if you're at USC and what what are they planning on doing? The coaches are out on the road recruiting. And look, it's not the first time coaches would you know would have been called off the road. That actually happened uh, at Ole Miss on Sunday. Uh, Matt Luke got fired. I remember hearing the possibility of that earlier in the day, and I dismissed it uh, from another coach I talked to and then started hearing more of it, reached out to a guy on staff who was like, I'm on the road recruiting. I haven't heard any of it. And then you dig a little more and then talk to somebody uh, close to Matt Luke who goes, no, it's true. And let's Well, let's talk about that because I think the other ones, Steve Adazio, Charlie Strong, these are not guys that – I mean, these are guys we probably expected to get fired on Sunday. They were on the hot seat. Was there any inkling that Matt Luke was in trouble before the 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 uh, pretending the the pretend urination heard around the world the the craziest egg bowl ending you will ever see? I hadn't heard that. Um, I think it, I think there was a lot of people and, and powerful boosters who were got really frustrated um, about all the way that played out and looked for somebody to, to, to pin it on and they could pin it on Matt Luke, which to me is a little ironic because I watched his post-game press conference and I thought given what happened, I thought Matt Luke addressed it and handled it as well as any coach possibly could. And I don't know. I mean, he took over a program that was, there's a little bit of Clay Helton in this situation. He took over a program that was in the, in the wake of a lot of crap coming out of it. I mean, you had a, a scandal with Hugh Freeze, you had NCAA sanctions, and he stabilized the place. Now, he, unlike Clay Helton, he is from there. He is a Mississippi guy. He played at Ole Miss. He coached there. He, everybody really likes him. Uh, I thought, you know, you watch them. They, it felt like the program was trending 
on the upswing there a little bit. I know they had a rough year, but they played played well in place in in spots down the stretch, and yet now they're going to make a big coaching change. And you know they have an AD who just became just became official probably a couple of weeks ago after being in the interim. So just a weird situation in Oxford. I think he got a raw deal. I I think he was handed a, a, a first of all he got the job in the first place because he won the Egg Bowl. Now he's losing the job because he lost the Egg Bowl. Uh, usually you want to make these coaching decisions from a kind of a, a, a non-emotional perspective. It seems to me that Ole Miss does not do that. And, um, I mean, he, he inherited a mess from Hugh Freeze. There was no scenario where they were going to contend for the SEC in his, was his only second full year, you know, without the interim tag. Now, uh, should they be better than four and eight? Probably. But, we saw a freshman quarterback emerge. He has Rich Rod as his offense coordinator. He has Mike McIntyre as defensive coordinator. Uh, don't you want to see where that's going to go the following year? To me, and 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 on top of that, to enter this coaching market. Well, first, well, first before I say that, because they gave Rich Rod and Mike McIntyre those big contracts, they're going to end up paying a fortune to fire the three of them. And then you're entering a coaching market where there's already two other open SEC jobs in Missouri and Arkansas. And I'm tempted to say Ole Miss is the least appealing of the three. You might say it's Arkansas just because whoever gets that job is going to face a gargantuan rebuilding task. But in terms of long-term potential, I, I, I just I, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for them to come out of this with some home run coach because I'm not sure Missouri and Arkansas are going to come out with a home run coach either. No, I mean, look, you could see Lane Kiffin, perhaps, back in the SEC at Arkansas. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe Ole Miss can get Mike Norvell. I think I think there's probably a better chance of Mike Norvell ending up at an Ole Miss than there is of him at Mizzou. You could see Will Healy is a rising star, and he was at Austin P. and then he had a, has had a terrific first season at Charlotte. I mean, that's that's a big jump up to uh, up to the SEC, but he's a guy I could see having, you know, getting a chance in there um, if he if Healy ends up at Mizzou. Um, I don't know. Uh, this is those, all those jobs feel kind of the same. Like, I feel like there is some overlap in the candidates in terms of like what you see. You would you know, those are those are jobs where like. You know, that's not what USC is in play for or anything like that. But um, the coaching carousel got got very, very um, cluttered in a relatively short period of time. Before we uh, before we kind of touch back on USC, I did want to bring up Rutgers did end up hiring Greg Schiano. They started getting a lot of momentum again on Friday night. And then by Saturday, people at Rutgers were very confident. They thought that was going to happen. And then Saturday night it did. The deal is eight years for around $32 million, $25 million guaranteed, as we reported yesterday. Um, are, are you in agreement with me that this is probably as good as Rutgers could do, in, given where they are right now? Oh, for sure. I, I think he was the only guy, really, realistically, that they could hire and the fan base would be like, yeah, we have a reason to be excited after after these several years of being you know the worst power five team in the country. Now I do think that if 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 you hadn't played out the way it did, it would be fascinating. The oral history of how this all played out will be fascinating in a couple of years. If it hadn't played out the way it did, where very publicly uh, the contract talks break down, 
And I feel like NJ.com became almost like uh, his de facto agent, just ratcheting up the pressure for them to go back to the table. You know, at that point, if they hadn't gotten him and they had introduced whoever, Jeff Halfley, anybody, like the fans would have been furious. They would have lost donors. They would have, uh, you know, the governor of the state got involved. Like they had to salvage it at that point. Now, if it had played out where he was never all that interested to begin with or they never really pursued him, you know, that, that might have played out a lot differently. But the way that it did, if they hadn't salvaged that, I think it would have gotten really ugly there at Rutgers. And look, it's a different, you know, uh, past success does not guarantee future success. We've seen, really, this keeps happening a lot now, right, where coaches come back for a second stint. Randy Etzels is not going very well <laughs> at UConn. Others have gone, you know, Chris Alt had a great second run, or I guess it was third run by There's then. It was a third run, actually. At, at Nevada. Um, we'll see what ends up happening with Gary Anderson at Utah State. It's happened, I went back and looked, I think it's eight times that it's happened in the modern era. I'll run through the list. Some of these are, are TBD. Gary Anderson certainly won his TBD at this point. Uh, Randy Etzel has not worked out in the second time. Mike Riley did work out pretty well. Bill Snyder certainly did work out well. Uh, Mark Whipple did not. Uh, Bobby Petrino mixed. Uh, Bill Walsh at Stanford kind of mixed. Uh, Johnny Majors did not work out well the second time, and Chris Alt did. A lot of the ones you mentioned, um, Etzel certainly won. Uh, Bill uh, Snyder, Mark Whipple. Mark Whipple would be ones where they were in a different conference by the time they came back the second time. That's what's going on here, right? It, it was a miracle job. It was an unbelievable job Shiano did the first time. I, I will always remember being there the night they beat number two Louisville. And the, the um, Empire State Building was lit red. And Mike Francesa and the Mad Dog were broadcasting live from Rutgers. I mean, it all seems very surreal and, and almost hard to believe now that that actually happened. But it happened in the old Big East. It did not happen in a conference where you are in the same division as Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State, and Michigan State. He's got his work cut out, uh, to say the least. But I do think he can, at the very least, unite the fan base, get the fan base energized, give them hope that it can certainly be better than it is now. Somebody, I mean, some, some snarky person on Twitter yesterday wrote back, you know, what's the point? Who cares? He's never going to get them higher than fourth in the Big Ten East. And I said, if he gets them to fourth in the Big Ten East regularly, they will build him a statue. I mean, that's, that's a lot better than where they are now. I don't think anybody's under any delusion that they're gonna they're gonna um, rival Ohio State and Michigan. That's just never gonna happen. Uh, but they could be a seven. And, they could be what Indiana is this year. There's no reason why they couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. No, I I definitely agree with that. We're running out of time here, um, but real quick, obviously championship weekend coming up. Uh, I will be at the Pac-12 championship. You're actually going to the SEC championship. Is that which which of these conference championship games are you most excited for? I'm excited for certainly for the Pac-12 one on Friday night. Uh, I'd like to see the rematch in the Big 12, and I definitely want to see what happens. You know, can Georgia knock off LSU? I mean, Georgia has got a really good defense, and can they do something no one else has done? And that's slow down Joe Joe Burrow. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fascinating matchup. I I'm very skeptical that Georgia can win just because. They've been such a mediocre offensive team this year, and now they're without 
they're they're going to be without Lawrence Cager for the whole game, their top receiver, and George Pickens swung at that guy at, at the uh, Georgia Tech game, so he'll be out for the first half. But as we head into the playoff and think about LSU's prospects, is uh, can Georgia render Joe Burrow mortal? Will be fascinating. Personally, selfishly, I'm excited for the Pac-12, and, and here's why. I was at that game last year. It could not have been more depressing. The, the stadium was two-thirds empty. It was two nine-and-three teams. The final score was 10-3. to three. It, The whole thing just felt like, uh, uh, like I was at a group of five conference championship game. A year later, one of the teams was playing for a spot in the playoff. I just saw that ABC is sending the A-team, Fowler and Herb Street, to it. So uh, what a difference from last year to this year. So it should be a very fun week. We will be back here for the Audible Extra later this week where we'll dive a little bit more into those uh, conference championship games. And who knows, by the time we record that, maybe a couple of these these schools will have filled their head coaching jobs and, and we could talk a little bit more about that as well. We'll see you next time. If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link theathletic.com slash the audible that's 40 percent off your subscription to the athletic talk about it for years